You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together this afternoon. We turn to the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. We turn to chapter 8, beginning at verse 1 to the end of that chapter. And you'll note here that the Apostle Paul begins a new section in this particular epistle that we've been dealing with on and off for some time. Let us listen then to the word of our God as you find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Our text this afternoon is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Actually, it's the entire chapter. But if you look at verse 1, the second part, there you have the window into this chapter. In those words of the Apostle Paul, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Unity does not mean uniformity. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that while as Reformed believers we are united when it comes to the basics or the fundamentals of the gospel, we do not think alike on all the issues of life. On the fundamental issues we agree, but then there are a host of lesser issues on which there is Less agreement. Take, for example, such things as television, 
movies, makeup, dancing, tattoos, opera, playing cards, Sunday activities, dress, and a host of other matters, you will find many different opinions and approaches among Christians. Now, why is that? Why, on the one hand, is there such unity, and on the other hand, is there such diversity? Much of it is due to the fact that the Bible does not speak about everything. I suppose if there were a commandment, you shall not watch television, or you shall not own a television, then television would be out of the picture, literally. But there is no such commandment because in the days, of course, when the scriptures were being written, the television had not even been invented. And so it is with a host of other things. They were not around, or they are not mentioned or spoken about. And thus we are left to wonder about them and sometimes to wrestle with them as well. May we or may we not? And in the process of wrestling with these things, the Bible often, or I should say, in these things that the Bible does not speak about, there are often two common reactions that emerge. For example, on the one side we have the legalists. They insist that everything in life is either white or black, it's either right or wrong, and they love to make a list of rules specifying the things that you can do and the things you cannot do. It seems they find some security in labeling. And perhaps the best example of legalists are the Pharisees. They hated loose ends. They couldn't tolerate any gray areas in life. So they, they tried to legislate almost everything conceivable. And indeed, they ended up with more than 800 rules that people, believers in the Old Testament, were supposed to live by. Rules about dress and family, entertainment, leisure time, worship, business. In short, almost all of life was covered by these rules. Yes, and there are still Christians who live like that. Whenever a new issue crops up in this life, they, they feel this, as it were, inner compulsion to make a new rule. Then they live in fear as to what may happen if they don't have a rule. And little do they realize that their compulsion to make rules may well suffocate them and rob them of their liberty in Christ. But then, beloved, if there are legalists, there are also libertines, believers who insist that everything that is not specifically forbidden in the Bible is allowed. Now, I would say to you, that too can be a very dangerous recipe. For example, drug use is never once mentioned in the Bible. Does that now mean that Christians may engage in it? Or careless driving was unheard of and there is no reference anywhere of a chariot driver receiving a ticket for speeding. So is that okay? Do you see what kind of problems you can get into if you adopt this sort of an approach to the issues of life? 
And so we have to say legalism is dangerous, but license is just as dangerous. So where does that leave us? In what direction shall we turn? In the direction of legalism or in the direction of license? Shall we make more rules? Shall we abandon all rules? What approach do we take to the non-biblical mentioned issues of life? And what shall we teach our children? Well, for an answer, at least in part, we turn to our text of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For there, beloved, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with some of these same sorts of issues and tensions. And I'd like to preach to you, therefore, on the theme, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And we're going to hear that the Apostle Paul is speaking in this chapter about knowledge, about liberty, about conscience, and about love. So, beloved, what was the big issue in Corinth? Well, believe it or not, the big issue in Corinth was meat. No, it was not about meat lovers versus vegetarians, but rather it was about the correctness of eating meat that had first been sacrificed to idols. And maybe a little background information is needed here. The ancient Greek city of Corinth was a hotbed of paganism and a center of a lot of idol worship. There were heathen temples everywhere in every street corner honoring many different kinds of Greek gods. And there was also what was called the Acrocorinth, a huge temple on the Mount of Corinth which dominated the city and the lives of its inhabitants. Well, now, in all of these temples, sacrifices were daily events. Animals would be brought in by their hundreds, and they were then killed, burned, and sacrificed. <coughs> Only the whole animal was not consumed by fire. A part of the animal would be burned, another part of the animal would be eaten by the temple priests, and a large part of the animal would be left over, and it would be sold in the public markets. And indeed, so much of this meat was being sold in the public markets that there was no way of telling actually which was which. Were you buying now regular meat or were you buying idle meat? But yet not only did the public market present problems, the public banquets that were so much a part of life in those days did too. For example, if you were a member of a trade guild or some kind of professional organization or if you were sealing, as it were, a business deal or some other kind of transaction or if a certain special event was being celebrated, you hosted a banquet. And where did you commonly host such a banquet? Why, in one of these temples, of course. And while you were hosting one of those banquets, what was on the menu? Why, meat. Of course. But what kind of meat? Most likely, again, it was idle meat. Where you see, the common population believe that by sacrificing meat to an idol or a god, you, as it were, purified that meat. In that way, you got rid of all the demons that were attached to the meat. And so sacrificed meat was considered to be clean meat, harmless meat, 
demon-proofed meat, sacrifice meat was the best meat of all. Well, now, beloved, it was this whole practice that in turn raised enormous issues and pressures in the church at Corinth. But the question naturally arose, as a believer, what were you supposed to think and to do about this meat? On the one side, there were those who said, well, we just cannot buy it and we cannot eat it. This meat comes from heathen temples and from pagan sacrifices. It's unclean, it's impure. As Christians, we're not allowed to consume it. And we're also not allowed to eat it at the temple banquets. It's all off limits to Christians. On the other side, there were those who said, are we not free in Christ? And do we not have knowledge? Do we not, for example, know that these idols and these false gods really are nothing? They do not exist. They do not live. They, they do not matter. We know all of that. We know an idol is nothing. And therefore, there is no reason why we cannot eat this meat and why we can't take part in these banquets just because our pagan neighbors are caught up in this superstition and nonsense doesn't mean that we should be. So go to the market. Buy the best and the cheapest cuts of meat. Warm them up on your barbecues and enjoy. There's no reason to boycott either these, this meat or these banquets. This food is not an issue with God. Well, beloved, that's how the arguments went. So, so what do we have in Corinth and the church there? Well, we have a divided church. We have the members who are at loggerheads. We have the meat eaters and we have the non-eaters. And it's all a very touchy and charged issue. Yes, and now, beloved, it's this particular issue that's presented to the Apostle Paul and that he deals with here in chapter 8. And what does he say by way of response? Well, if you look, for example, at the verses 1, 2, and 3, he begins by, by commenting on this knowledge, this insight that part of the congregation claimed to possess. And actually those words in verse 1, we know that we all possess knowledge, can also be a quote or translated as a quote. And the quote would be, and the people would then be saying, we all possess knowledge. You find that alternative reading in the italics at the bottom of the text. And so those in favor of eating this meat were placing all the stress on their special knowledge and insight about idols. They prided themselves on their awareness about idols being nothing and that they insisted that other members in the church should see it exactly the same way as they did. You need to get over your scruples. You need to look at this matter as we do. You need to use that special knowledge we've been telling you about to discern properly. And now, beloved, the Apostle Paul comes along, and what does he say? He says, knowledge puffs up. 
And he adds, the man who thinks that he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, the Apostle Paul is willing to concede that they have knowledge and that their knowledge may be correct and even theologically accurate, but he says, you know, that's really not the end of the story. You can have knowledge and still be wrong. You can even have right knowledge and insight and still be wrong. He says it all depends what you do with this knowledge. How do you handle this knowledge? How do you apply this knowledge? How do you use this insight you have received? You see, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, the mature Christian is someone who both thinks right and acts right. The true believer is not simply a theorizing believer, but also a relational believer. In other words, he knows that truth relates not just to the head, but also to the lives and the hearts of others around him. You can be oh so right in what you know. But you can be oh so wrong in how you apply it. So in the end, the question is, what are you doing with your knowledge? This special knowledge. Are you using it to build up or to blow up? Is it puffing you up, perhaps? But then, beloved, if the first part of Paul's answer has to do with knowledge, the second part in the verses 4 to 7 has to do with liberty. In those verses, Paul affirms that those who have this kind of knowledge about Corinthian idolatry and paganism actually are right. As Paul says, an idol is nothing. And as Paul also says, there really is only one God. And and God the Father is the source of everything. and, And Jesus Christ is the mediator through whom and by whom we receive everything. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, technically, theologically, there is nothing wrong with food, sacrifice to idols, and eating it. But he says at the same time, that's not the end of the story. For there are members in the church of Jesus Christ who think differently. And he says these members are so accustomed to idols that when they eat such meat, they think they have, that has been sacrificed to an idol, it is defiled. In other words, there are members in the church of Corinth who think that eating this meat is sin. And no matter what you tell them, no matter how long you talk to them, they simply cannot get over their scruples and their reservations and their hesitations. And what that shows you is, that may sound strange to you, but something can be a sin for one believer, but not for another believer. And then we're not speaking about those things that are specifically commanded and prohibited in the Bible. 
Now we are speaking about those things that the Bible specifically doesn't speak about. Some believers feel so strongly about these things that if they go out and do them anyway, they know that actually they are violating their own consciences, confusing their hearts, breeding resentment, and fostering guilt in their lives. And the point that Paul wants to make clear is that anyone who causes a weaker brother or sister like this to defile their conscience is more a hazard than a help to them. You are abusing your liberty in Christ Jesus if you cause a weaker believer to do something that he believes in his heart of hearts is wrong. But then, beloved Paul isn't finished in his argument, where he speaks not only about knowledge and about liberty, he also says something in addition about conscience. You find that in the verses 8 to 12. And in that connection, picture the following scenario. We, we have this mature, we have this knowledgeable believer. He, he walks to the city of Corinth. He goes to the Acro-Corinth above the city. He enters the temple. He sits down and he eats, meets with unbelievers gathered there. Prime rib is on the menu. And the people are really digging in. And little does he realize, however, that a weak brother saw him walk through town, saw him go up to the Acrocorinth, the hill there, followed him and watched him eat idol meat. And so what are the consequences of this? And you'll notice Paul mentions two things, one in verse 11, one in verse 12. First he says, he'll be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols. And second, he says, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You see, he will eat what he really believes is sin. And as a result, his faith will be compromised and undermined. And you... If you are the mature believer, you have to shoulder part of the blame because your superior knowledge has helped do him in. And now think about that for a moment, beloved. I think it has all sorts of applications. For what it is saying really is that you and I can cause a person to sin by leading them into a situation that they cannot handle at all. You may be able to handle it just fine. Your conscience may be perfectly clear. Your heart may fully be at rest. However, if you are exercising your Christian liberty at the expense of your brother's conscience, you're committing sin. You're not allowed to contribute to the fall of your brother for whom Christ has died. And that means you cannot ignore his vulnerability. You cannot simply ignore his weakness. 
None of us are allowed to endanger someone else. Would you give your child a lighter to play with? Would you give your teenage son a subscription to Playboy magazine? Would you serve whiskey to an alcoholic? The answer is, of course not. So then why should one believer play fast and loose with the weak conscience of another brother or sister? We should never cause someone else to do something that they believe to be wrong. As Paul says, we should never become a stumbling block to the weak. Your clear conscience should not bring disaster to others. No, what should prevail in all such situations, says the Apostle Paul, is love. And that's the last part of his argument in this particular chapter. Earlier he had said, knowledge puffs up, but then he adds almost immediately those words, but love builds up. And he had also added, but the man who loves God is known by God. So the real point, he says, is that your knowledge, no matter how refined, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how deep, how voluminous it may be, your knowledge must always be tempered by love. Someone has said, love without truth is hypocrisy. But truth without love is brutality. Our orthodoxy, in other words, does not allow us to run ripshod over the feelings of others. We may be 100% theologically correct on a certain issue, but if we come across in a superior, arrogant, even mean-spirited manner, we are still wrong in the eyes of God then we do not yet know as we ought to know. Yes, and it's that awareness that leads the Apostle Paul to conclude, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall or to sin. And you may call that, beloved, love in action. No matter what I know, no matter that my conscience is clear, no matter that I am in the right, no matter how good a good steak tastes, if it causes my brother to fall, I'll give it up. And that's what's called being regulated by love. And if we were all regulated by love, what an impact that would have, beloved, not only in the church, but also in the world in which we live. In one of his most penetrating statements, our Lord Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now think about that for a moment. And think about what the Lord Jesus does not say. He he does not say they will know you are my disciples because of your knowledge of my word. He doesn't say they will know you are mine because of all of your correct theological formulations and insight. He doesn't either say they will know that you are my disciples by the amount of time that you spend praying. All of those things may be valuable. But they're not what does the attracting. No, it's only love that really and truly attracts. When the world sees that we love like our Savior loved us, then we'll become like magnets. Well, now it is this love, Paul says, that was actually lacking in Corinth. In that particular place, in that city, in that church, knowledge was triumphing over love. And he wants to turn things around. In my extension, beloved, what about us here in Langley? Is knowledge alone our overriding aim? Do you see this pulpit as little more than a knowledge factory? Our catechism classes nothing more than assembly lines producing little people who are full of religious data. Are our Bible study groups nothing more than meetings where we seek to build up our inventory of religious knowledge and understanding? Our lives dominated only by a striving for theological correctness? Or is there more? And the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians and he reminds us that there must be more because God expects more. Our knowledge He's saying, must always express itself through love. Right doctrine always calls for right application. Truth, no matter how glorious and how deep and how rich, should always be wrapped in sensitivity. And isn't that the same point that the Apostle Paul will make later on again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where he writes, If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I can fathom all mysteries, and if I have all knowledge, and if I have a face that can move mountains, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. Love never fails. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Follow the way of love. And that means follow the way of the triune God, of the Father who sends 
his son out of love, of the son who gives his life as a supreme demonstration of love, and of the spirit who is always and still today teaching the church of Jesus Christ how to love. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.